This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And if you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as it relates to maybe a passage of scripture they're studying or an issue they're facing in their life and they want to know what God says about it, we'll be looking at the only book he ever wrote, the Holy Bible. So glad that you could join us today. Again, if you have a question, you can call us locally here at 843-525-1859. Or you can, if you're listening through the internet and you want to use our toll-free number, we broadcast through the internet around the world 24-7, and the toll-free number is 877, the call letters WAGP980. We also have people who email us directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. So any of those ways will get you through. Some people call in, and they don't want to go on the air live, and they prefer to dictate their question, though we give preference to live callers, and it's always helpful to speak directly in case there's a follow-up or maybe some clarity that we need in the question that has been dictated otherwise. So, Rick, as always, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Indeed, indeed. We've uh, got a number of lines that just lit up. Uh, Let's see if any of them are wanting to go live. If not, uh, we always do give preference to our live callers. Uh, It appears that we do. So let's go to our first live caller who is on the line now. Good morning and welcome to the Bible Line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, as part of my daily devotions, we go. I've been reading through the Old Testament and then getting into the New Testament. But currently in the Old Testament, and just reading about Moses and you speaking of him, about how humble he was and, and such, such a great man, I'm, I'm, I was reading about when God had, or had him strike the rock and bring the Israelites water. Where was where was Moses's lack of faith or or whatever happened to make God so angry with him that he would not allow him to go into the promised land? What what was he, what was Moses's exact sin there? <laughs> Excuse me, it's a good question. Well, number one, um, God didn't tell him to strike the rock twice, but once, and uh, actually told him on the first occasion to strike the wa- rock once, and the second occasion to speak to the rock. But Moses made a little showboat, I suppose, at that point, uh, because he's the most humble man who walked on the earth, of course, did not mean that he was sinless. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think the bigger issue, and of course, Moses was a prophet, and we learn in the book of Acts that all the prophets, as Peter states in Acts 10, preached about Messiah. And so they had um, a greater understanding than the average Joe, so to speak, over what Messiah was going to do and accomplish. And, of course, in 1 Corinthians 10, we are reminded that the rock which followed them was a type of Christ. And so to strike the rock twice, in essence, was to 
uh, in some ways destroy the type that God had because Messiah would die once. He would be struck once, not twice. And so when Mo- Moses did this, he was really in violation of what God had said. And he was angry. He was upset. Um, he could have expressed a righteous anger, but it went beyond that to, to pride. And, you know, sometimes God does things once to communicate a message. I suppose if um, every city in America or across the world that's filled with sodomites, uh, if God destroyed them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, well, there wouldn't be many cities uh, left standing in a lot of places. San Francisco probably wouldn't exist. But sometimes God does something once to communicate his disdain for a particular issue or sin or something that bothers him. And, and of course, uh, God hates pride. And Moses exercised pride there. But he also, and I think this was the bigger issue, he really was destroying the type that was seen in the rock. Uh, and again, you're letting scripture interpret scripture in first Corinthians 10 gives us that insight when Paul recounts Israel's history. Uh, but nonetheless, Moses was a prophet and we learn he's, he's not the first prophet. Um, but he, the very first prophet we know in scripture, and we know this from the new Testament because Christ calls him a prophet is able, but nonetheless, of the prophets, the scripture says uh, very plainly by the mouth of the apostle Peter uh, that they all preached Christ in Acts chapter 10. So with that said, uh, he understood a lot more about Christ than we may understand that he understood. Uh, But Moses, of course, even described himself as a type of Christ uh, in Deuteronomy 18. One is coming just like me. And there would be a lot of associations between um, the Lord Jesus and Moses himself. But in Acts 10, 43, we have the explicit statement of him, of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And Moses was one of those prophets. Good question. Let's go to the next one. That's been asked many, many times. Uh, uh, You can find more detailed answers here at searchthescriptures.org in previous broadcasts. All right, 843-525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. If you have a question, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. And Aiden from Albany, Georgia, writes, What is your opinion, Dr. Brogy, as to the Book of Enoch? It's not among the 66 books of the Bible. However, there are sections, uh, Genesis 5 and 24, Hebrews 11, 5, that refer to Enoch. The controversy surrounding this book typically focuses on the issue of Nephilim, but as a general matter, is the book sound? Is there evidence to believe of uh, or think that the Book of Enoch is divinely inspired? I won't ask you about the Nephilim, as I've been listening to your course on angelology, a great course, by the way. I think in that course you take the position the Nephilim are fallen angels. So uh, uh, bottom line, uh, I guess the question is, how do you approach this issue of uh, the Book of Enoch? I deal with this. If you, It sounds like this person is taking some courses in the Institute of Biblical Studies, and one of the courses that I've taught, I think the most detailed course I've ever taught is on the subject of bibliology, and one section deals with the canonicity of Scripture. And so I deal in that section of the course with what we call the apocryphal literature. The apocryphal literature are books written 
between Malachi and Matthew, so to speak, during that 400 years when there was no prophet in Israel. It's not totally a silent era and that God through the prophet Daniel, as we're going to see when we pick up Daniel here right after Easter, we come to the prophetic section in Daniel 7 through 12. It's not totally silent because Daniel predicts what's going to happen in that 400 year time frame. But there were some books that were written that the Jewish people never believed were authoritative, never part of scripture. They're helpful in that they shed light on what happened in that 400 year period. But the Jewish people and the early church never deemed them to be canonical. They didn't pass the test of canonicity by which a book would be included in the Bible. And in that course uh, on bibliology, the the doctrine of the Bible, we deal with five or six tests for canonicity. Like, was it written by a prophet or a man of God? For instance, for someone to have their uh, stamp of approval from God on their life, they had to give a short-term prophecy as well as a long-term prophecy. Or they had to do the signs, wonders, and miracles, all things being equal, that were unique to one of God's men. Um, so was there was the man of God per, confirmed by an act of God? That's an important question to ask. Uh, is it consistent with previous revelation and so forth? So we go through six or seven, actually, tests of canonicity. So the question, number one, is, is he actually even quoting the book of Enoch, which is highly debatable? Uh, there is an assumption in some commentaries I had, and I preached a series once on Jude. I probably should redo it because the, we can't even play it on the radio. The sound quality is so poor. I did it in the early 90s, and I preached 22 messages on the book of Jude. And I dealt extensively with uh, Enoch. And, of course, uh, Enoch is mentioned in Genesis 5, and he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we do not confuse him with another Enoch in the Bible in Jude's writing because he's mentioned here as the Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. And then this word of prophecy is given here in Jude. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Well, let's assume, number one, that this is something that Enoch wrote. And if you actually go back and read the book of Enoch, and you compare here the prophecy that is recorded by Enoch in the book of Jude, it doesn't read identically with what is recorded in Enoch. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that he's quoting the book of Enoch. Just because he's quoting the book of Enoch doesn't mean that he's giving endorsement to the book of Enoch. Paul uh, quotes Epenemenides. He was a um, poet, and he quotes him in Acts 17. He quotes him in his letter to Titus. And uh, those one statements, <coughs> excuse me, those two, two single statements that are written by that poet, who was a very popular poet in Paul's day that people would read, became part of the canon of Scripture. So there is truth that an unbeliever can say, and if it's consistent with what God says, and God includes it in the canon of Scripture, then it becomes inspired. But let's ask a question. Is uh, Jude even quoting the book of Enoch? It's highly debatable. In fact, it's highly debatable as to when uh, the book of Enoch was even written. 
Uh, some people would say it was written within the two testaments. A lot of people would put it in what's called the pseudepigraphal literature. Pseudepigraphal, pseudos, false, graphe, write, the false writings. So when we speak of the pseudepigraphal books, we're speaking of those false writings that came after the completion of the New Testament, some while the New Testament was written, that were not written or approved by an apostle. And many believe that Enoch was written in this time frame. Some believe it was written uh, while Jesus walked on the earth. Uh, So it's highly debatable when the book was even written. Lay all that aside. The fact is, is that there were oral traditions that came down uh, through uh, the Jewish people in some that are included in the body of Scripture. So let's just say for the sake of argument, And again, the quotation, when you do a careful analysis and comparison between what's actually written in Enoch and what you find in the book of Jude, they don't match perfectly. But let's just say it's a translation issue and give someone the benefit of the doubt. It's very possible that Enoch or whoever wrote the book of Enoch, and it was certainly not Enoch. uh, Enoch was translated ever before um, the great flood in Uh, before Moses wrote the first book of the Bible. Uh, But whoever wrote the book of Enoch, it's possible that they were quoting an oral tradition that God put his stamp of approval on. Uh, There were oral traditions even in the New Testament. Paul will say it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he credits that with the Lord Jesus. Well, where do we find that? Is that in the Gospels? No, it's not found anywhere in the Gospels. But that was obviously something that the Lord Jesus had said And the Spirit of God, as he inspired Paul to write, included that oral tradition in the Scripture, and it became authoritative. So again, even if Jude were quoting the book of Enoch, and I don't believe he is. I don't believe it for one moment. I believe what he's doing is he's quoting an oral tradition. And it could have been the same oral tradition whoever wrote the book of Enoch wrote. But I don't think he would quote from the book of Enoch for several reasons. The book of Enoch is filled with error. There's one error on top of another that goes against the plain teaching of the word of God. And so for Jude to quote even one true statement from the book of Enoch might lead someone to believe, well, maybe I should go read the book of Enoch since Jude quotes it. But there's error after error after error, hundreds of errors. Uh, When I I was in seminary uh, and we had a course on, you know, the Bible and we studied some of the pseudepigraphal books and the apocryphal books, we studied Enoch and we went through all the errors that are found in Enoch. And uh, there's just dozens and dozens, hundreds. I mean, it's not like a a short book. It's, uh, I forgot, there was like 118 chapters or something in the book of Enoch. It's a big book. And it's filled with error. And so um, it was never viewed by the Jewish people as canonical, as being inspired by God. And it was never viewed by the early church as being inspired by God. It didn't pass any of the tests of canonicity. One of the tests of canonicity that we cover in our course on bibliology is what is written must be consistent with other things that God has said. And there's just all kinds of error that totally contradicts. It'd be like the book of Maccabees. Now that's in the Catholic Bible, first and second Maccabees. Why do we not have it in our Bible? Well, it's one of those intertestament books. It's not pseudepocryphal. It's uh, apocryphal. Um, it falls between the two testaments. So it's not part of the pseudepigraphal writings. 
Uh, it's interesting history, but it's not inspired. The Jews never viewed it inspired. For instance, it teaches that you should pray for the dead. Uh, where do we get the whole idea of praying for the dead in the Roman Catholic Church? We get it from the book of Second uh, Maccabees. But is that taught in Scripture? No, it's appointed for a man to die once, then the judgment. There's nothing to pray for. The one second after you die, you're either in heaven or you're in Hades. There is no in-between. And so to pray for the dead is a wasted exercise, and it's a false teaching. And so we could say with the book of Enoch. So anyway, I could spend a lot of time on it, but I won't. But let's go to the next question. All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Hey, uh, Anthony, thanks for calling. Good? Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, all right, Dr. Brogan. How are you doing this morning? Doing good, brother. Thank you. Question. question. First of all, state, quick statement. Uh, I must want you to know that Rick is the best Sunday school teacher around here uh, <laughs> right. at 915, all right? That's a plug for his class, I guess. Yeah, huh? yeah, he's doing a good job. Good job. Question. You know, I, I I just lost another friend of mine, and he's he's the kind of person that um, some people will not invite to their house or sit down and eat dinner with him hmm. or something like that. You know, he, he used to drink a lot and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But And I know that God loves him just as much as he loved you and I, correct? Right, that's right. He loves Hitler just as he much loves me, you and I, right? Yes, he did. He, he loved yeah. Hitler as much as he loves us. That's right. right. Uh, in, in, in the in the saving right. sense, because there is yeah. a special love that God puts on us once we are saved, and so right. we're called right. his beloved. But you're right, yes. Right. God okay. loves all lost people equally, yes. Right. But my question is, when we have friends like this, you know, and I, I think everybody have friends like this. Yes. Should we go after them really aggressively? I mean, when I say aggressively, uh, it seems like we should not wait. I feel like we should not wait for an opportunity. I'm not saying that, you know, I feel like we should not wait for opportunity. We feel like we should just go after them. You know, just go after them until, at least until they have heard the gospel or tried to respond to the gospel. My question is, you know, should we ask and we ask God to say, God, show me how you see these people. Can you show me the same way how you see these people? Should I see them the same way? Hmm. And I know in, in, in need of a Savior. Yeah. And my, and my question is, you know, I think sometimes we go after people who got the same kind of job and people who live in our community, that, you know, upscale and stuff like that. And but we have these people like that they're friends of ours, but sometimes we kind of kind of stay away from them because of the lifestyle that they live. I'm not saying going to do what they do, but shouldn't we go after them aggressively? And and if you have anything to say about it, let me because these and this is one of the guys I I invited to my house once before, you know, and he heard. I know he heard, but I invited. So how should we go after these guys? And I'm gonna hang up a listen. Well, it's a great question, and we were talking a little bit about this uh, last Sunday, Rick, uh, where we dealt with Jesus when he's, on one occasion, in um, a town he made his headquarters is called Capernaum. Of course, he left Nazareth and went to Capernaum and set up shop there, and so the ministry of Christ was largely done from Capernaum, and 
course, he met a fellow there by the name of Levi. We better know him today as Matthew, the one who wrote the first book in the New Testament. And, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes who worked for the Pharisees were disgusted with the Lord Jesus. And they said, well, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, And of course, uh, Jesus reminded them that it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to save the righteous. And by that, he doesn't mean that some people uh, are righteous and others are not. But I came to call sinners to repentance. In other words, I didn't come to save those who think they are righteous, those who think they don't have a need of a savior, but I actually go hard after those who know they are sinners. And very often this is why, of course, the tax collectors were uh, very open. Jesus, in another occasion, Matthew 21, when he tells the parable of the two sons, he said, truly, I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you do. In what respect? Because those people knew they were bankrupt. They knew they were sinful. They knew that unless God developed a rescue plan for them, they didn't stand a ghost of a chance. So um, Christ, my point is, didn't go after the quote unquote beautiful people. Uh, He hung around with a lot of people that some folks would be disgusted with. And that's who our savior is. You know, physicians hang around in the company of the sick. That's what they're called to do. And those who are obedient to the Great Commission find themselves in the company of sinners. We're all sinners, and we're all equally in need of a Savior. But very often it's those whom the world does not deem as beautiful people. The drunkard, the drug addict, the prostitute, the immoral person. Very often those people are ignored. Well, we we don't want to bother with them, you know. And Christ cares deeply for such people. And many times it's people who are saved. We've got dozens of people in our church, some of whom I know their history and other people don't. And uh, they're ashamed to speak of their past. But we've got dozens of people who are saved from the most sordid backgrounds and they heard the gospel and God broke through and changed them. I think of one guy in our church who I went to his house and he was drunk when I got there. And I thought, I hope I'm not wasting my breath. And I shared the plan of salvation with him. And he prayed the sinner's prayer. And I honestly, when I left his home that night, I just didn't know if this was just some drunk guy, you know, repeating a prayer after me. But he was back in church the next Sunday and his life was dramatically changed. And he's never touched alcohol since. So God will surprise us sometimes. There are people who get caught up in sin for different reasons. You know, for many, it's an anesthetic for deep pain in a heart, and they don't know how to deal with it. And so they go to the world's remedy, and they try to fill that void with sin. But it never works. So don't give up on people. I know Anthony Dustin. Anthony has people into his home. I've been there on many occasions that a lot of people would give up on. Uh, But he didn't. And who knows, Anthony, you know, he heard the gospel one of those times I was in your home sharing Christ with him. And sometimes in the last moment of a person's life, a person turns to the Lord. You know, death flashes in front of him and God is so merciful, so long suffering. Now, I wouldn't presume there is only one deathbed conversion in all the Bible so that none will presume. But there is one so that none will despair. Uh, so that we recognize there's still a possibility 
in some instances for a person to repent and to believe. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, uh, 525-1859, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a listener would like to know, um, she says she needs discernment on who to believe when listening to different pastors or teachers on the radio and online. She absolutely loves learning more about God, uh, the Bible, and and truth. Um, She listens to David Platt, Paul Washer, Francis Chan, Vadi Bauckham, John MacArthur, Tony Evans, Robbie Zacharias, and a few more. She writes, I need to be confident that all of these men are true biblical men of God. She says she struggles with this a lot. Well, the guys you mentioned here are good guys. They all have the gospel. They're all preaching the plan of salvation. There might be areas of emphasis uh, that they might place within their teaching ministry that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But nonetheless, these are all good guys. Paul Washer would put, you know, he's a five-point Calvinist. I'm not. Um, But does he have the gospel? Does he reach out to lost? Does he? Absolutely. You know, Francis Chen, good guy, preaches the word of God. Uh, Chen, um, you know, do I agree with him maybe in terms of some of his beliefs on um, monetary? It almost takes an aesthetic view in terms of, you know, selling everything that you have. Um, Look, God may call him to do that. He doesn't call everyone to do that. He called the rich young ruler to do that because he was trying to highlight the guy's sin, that he worshiped money and that his God, his Lord was not Jesus, uh, that he was really unrighteous. He thought he was fine. Look, I obey this commandment and that commandment. And Jesus said, oh, well, you do well in doing that. But here's what you need to do. What was Jesus trying to do? He was trying to show him he was a sinner, that he was unrighteous and that he was a rebel because we all are. So all those guys are good guys, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to agree with every dimension and aspect uh, or application uh, of their theology. But on all the major issues, these guys are solid people, so you're, you're, you're on track. Just keep reading your Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit for discernment, and he'll give it to you, um, and press on. Let's go to the next question. All right. Um, uh, next listener would like you to explain the role of Bible teachers in the church, especially should women be teaching a class with both males and females in attendance? Well, God is very clear on this issue in First Timothy chapters 2 and 3. In First Timothy 2, he says, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. In the teaching office and the exercise of the gift of teaching is an authoritative role. You are standing, and this is why it's a role that is, you know, very, very important. James says, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you'll incur a stricter judgment. You know, you want to teach, especially in the office of teaching, which is a special call from God in addition to the gift of teaching. Just realize that with much that you say, there is great accountability that follows. And so it is essential that we teach God's way. And God is clear that when it comes to um, teaching, you are exercising a role of authority. You are standing in the place of God, so to speak, and saying, this is what God says. So you want to, one, rightly handle the word of truth. And God says that a woman should not do that over men. 
Why? Because he created us differently. He goes back. He gives two reasons to sustain that position. One, the order of creation, that headship was not given to Eve, but to Adam, and then how the fall unfolded. She was deceived because she stepped out of her God-given role by taking the spiritual leadership her husband should have been taking, and so she was deceived. It was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. His sin was more serious in some respects, but still, because she didn't do what God prescribed, then she fell and was caught up in deception. So clearly, uh, and then he goes on, by the way, and he describes the qualifications for a pastor. And he's very clear that these are male qualifications. He must be this. He must be the husband of one wife. Uh, That's why we don't have women pastors if we believe the Bible. Now, some people mock that. They laugh at that. They say, well, that's old fashioned. But look, there were no women pastors for the first 1900 years of church history. And it really didn't come until the Pentecostal movement. And because they placed so much emphasis on experience over the authority of the word of God. Well, I had this experience. So let me find a verse of scripture that can baptize this position that I've taken. You don't put your experience over scripture. You put your experience under scripture. Oh, I spoke in tongues. Therefore, let me find a verse that justifies that what I'm doing is what they did in the Bible. Um, Or God's called me to preach. So let me find a verse that sustains it. Oh, here's Deborah over here. Oh, here's Holder. Here's Miriam. By the way, I go through in a message I did every passage that people use out of context because the scripture never contradicts itself uh, to justify women pastors, whether it's a Huldah or a Deborah or the seven daughters uh, or the four daughters of, of Philip, doesn't matter. Um, look at them very carefully contextually. So when you speak to a Sunday school class, it's one thing for a woman to be in a Sunday school class and to help her husband or to teach all women, which is totally biblical and scriptural. But if you're in a mixed class and you're opening the scripture and you're teaching doctrine. It's not that you can't speak in a class or share your testimony or, you know, the teacher asks questions. And, but when you take the role of a teacher in a mixed class, then you have violated the word of God. And God says, we're not to do that. Oh, that's so old fashioned, Carl Berge. Well, maybe it is, but it's more than old fashioned. It's biblical because we've jettisoned what God has said. And we've got these women now that travel the country. Kay Arthur used to teach that. Now she teaches in mixed audiences. She's disobedient. That's why I stopped using her 15 years ago in our church. Beth Moore does it. She has cruises and conferences and she'll speak on a Sunday morning in the church and she'll say, well, I'm under the authority of my pastor. Look, no pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. You can't do that. And so we have uh, reversed roles and it's creating huge problems. We think we're smarter and wiser than God. Look, if it's new, it's not true. Why is it? For virtually 1950 years, there were no women pastors. And where did the whole thought of women pastors come in? For the most part, apart from Pentecostals, it came in your liberal mainline denominations that denied the authority of scripture. And at least the mainlines could say with a sense of integrity. Well, Paul clearly taught that women shouldn't be pastors. That's what they said at the genesis of the whole movement. Study your church history. It's clear. But Paul, they would say, was, you know, he just had a thing against women. 
No, that's not true. Uh, The word of God is clear. And so at least they had the integrity. What are evangelicals now? And we're just twisting what God said. Well, that was a localized problem. Or, you know, that didn't apply to the church at large. Oh, my. I wouldn't want to stand before Jesus Christ and make such a statement as a believer. So, no, don't teach in a mixed class. But you know what I hear women tell me all the time? Well, none of the guys, you know, want to do it. Then, then don't have a class. The women should sit on their hands and say, look, if you guys aren't man enough for one of you to step up to the plate and to teach us, we're not going to disobey God. We're going to do what God says is right. And I guess we won't have a class or we'll just sit here and look at each other. Now, that's godly. That's godly action on the on the part of the women in the class when they do that. But again, don't take my opinion for it. Go back. See what the scripture says. Listen to two messages I did on from first Timothy chapter two. And again, I detail every major text of scripture that people have used to justify women pastors. And we look at them in their original context and you find it's really not what some people today are saying. And that's why for 1900 years in church history, there were no women pastors. It's not by accident. It's not like the church was prejudiced for 1900 years and all of a sudden, oh, well, I guess we need to modernize. Uh, No, it wasn't anything like that. Anyway, I appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next caller says that Perry Noble's church is beginning to impact his community. Would you comment on uh, Noble's beliefs and if his is a Bible-believing church? Well, listen, Perry Noble's a highly controversial person. At best, he is a believer but he's a novice and he's not suited to preach the word of God. At worst, he's just a false prophet altogether. He is, every time I've heard this guy, I cringe because I hear so much error in what he says and so much half-truth every time I hear him. But you see, the sad thing is, is that people no longer know their Bible. And they come in and, you know, they come into their services and someone told me they went to one recently and they were given earplugs um, because it's so loud and they, they didn't want to keep certain people away who didn't like the loudness of the music. Uh, so they took the earplugs, but then they were told their kids couldn't go into the service because they were under the age of 13. That in and of itself should have told them right off that that was a, a gross infraction of the word of God. But again, you know, in evangelical, non-Perry Noble type churches, we separate children out all the time. Uh, listen, if they're old enough to, to recite their name and address and phone number, then they're old enough to be in the service. That's why we allow children to come in at the age of five. They can bring them in before that. We just ask that if they're disruptive, that they go to one of the closed circuit TV rooms for kids. Um, or, you know, they're in that training process, but we do allow nurseries for the younger kids, especially in this day where the family is so broken down and parents don't know anything about discipline. The kids are just out of control. So we meet people where they're at and we're training parents all the time on how to raise their children for Christ, how to properly biblically train them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, how to get your kids to listen to you and obey you and respond to you. And beyond that, how to reach their heart for Jesus Christ. But Paul assumes children 
are in the service when he says in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you. What is he doing in this letter written to the Ephesians that was read publicly, not just in the church at Ephesus, but in all the churches? He is directly addressing the children. If they are old enough to hear that children obey your parents, they are old enough to be in the church service and it is assumed they are in the church service. So one, to have what they call PG-13 worship services is unbiblical. Well, you know, we're talking about some heavy things that we don't want kids to hear. That should tell you right off there's gross error in that. When God even deals with sordid subjects in the word of God, he doesn't do it in a way that's tantalizing or tempting or, you know, inappropriate. And neither should a pastor when he gets up and preaches. Um, Someone sent me a video recently, Perry Noble bragging on his new tattoo. That's unscriptural. And then he tries to give an argument that this is part of the ceremonial law. And it was so pathetically weak and wrong And I thought, this guy doesn't know the difference between the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law of God. And he has no discernment on how to separate out those various commands. Uh, Then he talked about how he, on another video, someone sent me on 10 lottery tickets he bought when they had this last lottery. I forgot it was going to be like a billion dollars. So he goes out and buys his lottery tickets and goes on his Facebook page or blog or whatever it is. And he's bragging about the lottery tickets he bought. And, you know, if you have a problem with it and you think I'm going to go to hell, I guess I'll be in hell with you. And just just this crudeness is it's pathetic. You know, um, listen, he's been sanctioned even by, you know, the president, Tommy Kelly, a couple of years ago, was the president of, you know, all the Southern Baptist churches in the state of South Carolina said, listen, stop using vulgarity in the pulpit. Stop swearing in the pulpit, which he does. You want that kind of example for your kids? I don't want that kind of example on a Donald Trump if he becomes president of the United States. I, I don't want my grandchildren And if I were still had young children in the home and we're following politics, which, you know, is part of being a good American citizen and rendering to your Caesars, the things that are Caesars. You think I want a guy like that with his little crude comments? I I, I wouldn't want him, you know, my kids listening to him. And I I certainly wouldn't want a man of God is if, as we call, you know, a preacher, you know, using profanity and then using music that is just, you know, highway to hell. And some of these other songs that he uses, did he listen? No, he just laughed, pathetically laughed. How sad, how sad that he didn't have ears to hear. And the sad thing is, is because so many churches are untaught in our day. They're draining a lot of these small Southern Baptist churches. And in the state of South Carolina, they've taken a big hit in the cooperative program. The cooperative program is the giving arm of the Southern Baptist churches where, you know, some Baptist church, it might be 150, 200, 300 people. They give to state missions and then they give it to international missions. And so there's the international giving arm. There's a cooperative program where they pull their funds to underwrite their seminaries and all this. You know, they've taken a huge hit in the state of South Carolina. Why? Because Perry Noble is just draining all these small Southern Baptist churches, some of whom are having trouble now to keep the lights on and the lawn cut, much less pay a pastor's salary to shepherd the people. And, uh, you know, and it's very sad. 
I, I don't like him. I would never endorse him. Would never again. It, I think it, it at the least he's a Christian, but he is a novice and he's unqualified to be a pastor. And you could play for me any sermon by Perry Noble, and I could sit down there with you and I'd say that's true, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's true, that's wrong, that's right, that's right, that's wrong. Every time I've heard the guy, I, I just cringe. I think, do these people not know what they are listening to? But they're untaught. They do not know their Bibles. And so they're easily led astray by people like them. Or at, be- at worst case, he's a false prophet. Time will tell. We will see. Let's go to the next question. All righty. Uh, Elliot from Yuma, Arizona writes, as a Christian, is it wrong to be involved with network marketing? I'm doing a program called Wealth Generators, where I trade foreign currency and advertise for the company for others to join. They can sell memberships to others once they've joined. It's similar to a Pampered Chef and Avon. My wife doesn't want to participate. As she says, it goes against her conscience. How do you feel about this? Well, Elliot, you should listen to your wife. She's your helpmate. And if she has a check in her spirit, you should really think hard about that. Because, again, God brought her alongside for a reason. I would just say that, you know, most multi-level marketing companies... You know, they're often the subject of controversy and lawsuits because the way they're structured is very similar to a lot of illegal pyramid schemes, Uh, sometimes price fixing. um, A lot of people who get into them, there's a lot of high initial startup costs. And then you try to recruit your people below you and they have to pay the same actual startup costs and the people who are making the money are the people who are selling the products trying to convince you that you'll be rich and wealthy and everything else if you get involved in their company and, and you build your, you know, pyramid scheme, so to speak, of people below you. And I, I just don't like them. In fact, uh, there was one study, I can't remember, it was a guy at Harvard Business School years ago, and um, he said that like 98% of the people who get involved in the multi-level marketing schemes, drop out within two years and less than 2% make any money at it. The people who are making the money are the people who just kind of bring you along with their carrot. Well, you need to buy this set of DVDs. This will like change your business. And you need to come to this conference this weekend because we've got this special speaker and, and, you know, and you're spending all this money and all these costs and only a handful of people are making money. So um, I I just don't like the concept and there's nothing like just good old fashioned hard work, which is what God emphasizes in the word of God to make your money. So listen, Elliot, to your wife, this Elliot in Yuma, Arizona, who's written us today. Let's go to the next one. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Um, As a future healthcare provider, what biblical principles should I apply when talking with patients about so-called end-of-life decisions? So I'm thinking of situations besides euthanasia, which I know is evil. Like, what about patients who tell me they don't want to ever be put on a ventilator, never want to receive CPR, or deny chemotherapy that will likely treat their cancer, for example? As a believer, how should I respond to these patient desires? And thank you for your time. Well, appreciate the question. Uh, For instance, let's take some person with cancer and chemotherapy is a cure and they say well there's a highly probable um, 
you know, possibility that if you, you know, will go through these chemotherapy treatments that we'll be able to cure your cancer. Now, in some situations, they'll say, well, if we put you on chemo, uh, we might be able to keep you alive for a month longer. And uh, if you go through the chemo treatments too, your quality of life is going to be like really diminished and you know, these last few months because of the effects the chemo has on you. Well, that's that's one kind of thing, but it's quite another thing when a person, you know, doesn't want to fight for life. And really, most of the time behind that is a spiritual issue that is at stake because God teaches that there's nothing wrong with healing. Of course, we don't want to be like King Asa who sought the physicians and did not seek God and God was displeased. We want to be more like King Hezekiah who uh, sought the Lord, and then God used the medical means in which to bring about his healing. So nothing wrong with medicine. The Bible teaches it. But behind the medicine, we need to see the master physician, God himself, who can use that means. And God has given us that means. Paul told Timothy, look, take a little wine for your frequent stomach ailments. He was probably on a Nazarite vow. And as a uh, traveling pastor, he needed to take some strong drink, mix it in with the water, which would have killed the bacteria in the water and made his water safe to drink. That's just good stewardship of the temple of the Holy Spirit. But many times these kinds of statements are coming from the mouth of a person who doesn't know the Lord and, you know, use it. You've got to obviously be discerning here, um, but use it maybe as an opportunity to point to a bigger issue and say, well, you know, Joe, if, if you don't take this treatment, they say you'll be dead in 30 days and you're ready to die. And sometimes the unbelievers say, oh, I have no fear of dying. You know, and actually what they have is a false no fear. They should have every fear in the world. Well, well, let me ask you a question. How sure are you if you die that you'd go to heaven and uh, address that issue? Uh, are you 25% sure, 50, 75, 100? About 30% of unbelievers will say 100. That doesn't make it right. But if they say, well, I'm 90% or I'm pretty sure, I'm 75% or I'm 25%, can I share with you how you can be 100%? Or if they say they're 100%, ask them, you know, what do you think? Um, why tell me why you are a hundred percent? Why are you so certain if you were to die right now that you go to heaven and find out what basis they put their hope in? Is it a true biblical basis or is it not? So what I think you will find in more cases than not is that some of these people who think this way are unregenerate and maybe the starting place is to share the gospel with them. You know, I have people come into my office. Many times they've been to counselors sometimes for years And none of the counselors have been able to help them. And I will just start by asking them some basic questions to find out where they are in their spiritual journey with God. And it becomes very quickly apparent that they're not even saved. And so what do I do? I lead them to Christ. And once they are led to Christ, they have a new mind and they think the mind of Christ. But you see, a natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually praised. And so someone with a regenerated mind has the ability and possibility because our minds do have to be renewed and they're renewed through the teaching of scripture to think their thoughts after God's thoughts. And God is pro-life to the very end. Look, I, I want to go all 18 rounds if I have cancer. Um, you know, let God override the chemo treatments or radiation or anything else. 
Because I want to stay as li- alive as long as I can to be able to win people to Jesus and point them to our Savior. But if someone's lost, they don't think along those terms. And we need to help them to think differently. So um, anyway, I appreciate that. Uh, there's some good articles on this. If you go to, um, oh, who's that fella? Uh, I'm thinking here. Probe Ministries. Uh, go to Probe Ministries. Kirby Anderson. Kirby Anderson. He wrote some good uh, articles on his, uh, on his website um, that I think you will find useful in addressing this issue. I could spend the next hour on it, but uh, I'll give you that resource to go to. Let's go to the next one. Probe.org. Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, take our next caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. We lost them. All right. Let's go to the next dictated question. All righty. Gabby from Beaufort would like to know, she says she's a new Christian and has joined uh, CBC, enjoys the truth, uh, and that comes from your teachings and, of course, the Bible. However, she finds herself questioning the fr- – well, let's see. They say they're on the line again here. We always give preference to live callers, so uh, let's go ahead and answer that now. Thanks for holding. We'll get back to that question in just a second. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, Keep uh, reading the question. We'll finish this one. If we get back to them, great. All right. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so she finds herself, now that she's uh, become uh, a born-again believer – questioning some friends, acquaintances of hers who attend some of the newer churches in the area that are kind of like rock concerts. They uh, teach all about the Lord's grace. Um, She's attended these in the past, uh, these newer churches, and really never got much out of it, which is what led her to CBC. She also sees her friends and acquaintances who attend these churches drinking alcohol and many other avoidable sins they say, well, they'll just be forgiven for. Her famous words are, God will judge me at the end of the day. Am I being judgmental? Are these so-called hip, fun, non-judgmental churches signs of false teachers, even if they believe Jesus died for them and don't try to each day to live a true Christian life? Is this mockery? It is mockery. And this is why I say at best, Perry Noble is a novice, and at worst, he's a false teacher, because I meet all these people who come out of those churches, Perry Noble's included, who have justified a lifestyle many times that denies what, a, what the scripture says. Those who profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Titus chapter one, people who say they're born again, but their deeds deny him. There's not a yearning to be holy. There's not a yearning to be godly. There's a yearning to see how close we can get to sin. And that's bad. That's terrible. That's that that's evil. Now, again, you know, you know, a teacher by his fruit and, you know, uh, a teacher sometimes by his followers. And granted, there are people, I'm sure they come to community Bible church. They say community Bible church is their home and uh, they live a duplicitous lifestyle. Uh, Many times they're not members. They attend. So they think because they attend, they're a member and they may tell you they're a member, but they're not. But if we are aware of the fact that they are in some kind of open sin that denies what God calls a believer to do, then they come under church discipline. There's accountability. There's no accountability. And for instance, we had a couple who came to our church for just a few months. They left, they moved to Columbia, got up to Columbia. Um, He leaves his wife for another woman in the Perry Noble Columbia branch. So she calls me, she said, you don't really know me. I came to your church for about two months and 
uh, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, I, I, I learned so much and this is what's going on. What do I do? I said, well, you should go to the leadership of the church. So she calls me back a week later and the leadership of the church says, well, we're not going to do anything, but here's a marriage counselor you can go to. So what happens? He ends up divorcing his wife with her two children, marries another lady, the one he's committing adultery with in the church, and nobody says a thing. This is what marks false teaching, where they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Uh, Teachers who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's what they're doing. You know, that's what Perry Noble was doing. He's bragging about all the lottery tickets he bought. You know, he's turning the grace of God into licentiousness. That's the mark of an apostate, of a false teacher, or again, a very immature novice person. And God ultimately knows the fellow's heart. But I, without stammer or stutter, would tell you he's not qualified to be in the pastorate. The grace of God that brings us salvation. What does it do? It teaches us, it instructs us, it tutors us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live holy and righteously in this present age. It, it, it moves us to a different kind of lifestyle. And that's the problem. You know, that, that's what is happening with this whole seeker movement. They're either teaching enough grace to get people saved, or they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness, which is what a false prophet does. And most virtually all of these churches are not expounding the scripture. When Andy Stanley had that interview in 2009, and he made fun of preachers who believed in expository preaching and said that they were not creative, they were outdated. God says, preach the word, Timothy, preach the word. Don't preach your little creative sermons, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's what God calls us to do. And because that's not happening in the American pulpit, we have either A, churches that claim to be evangelical that are filled with unbelievers, or B, churches that are just covered over in baby Christians. And it's really, and so we're surprised that, you know, it's approximately, if Josh McDowell is right, 80% of these kids that are raised in these churches just walk away and deny the faith. Why is that? Because they weren't saved. And so they totally abandoned Christianity. That's the day we live in. Uh, We're going to study the book of Daniel, the second half, the prophetic section that will open up the revelation. But this is exactly what God says is going to happen at the end of time. What we are seeing in the American church, a church that for 150 years led evangelicals across the world, we are apostatizing, we are falling away from the faith. And this is exactly what God said would happen at the end of time. We are seeing it lived out right before us. Oh, but it's a big church. I got to be a part of it. Not everything is big is good. So anyway, we're out of time. But thank you for joining us today for the Bible line. And so pleased we could be together uh, tomorrow. We are in a new course on pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit at Community Bible Church, meeting at 638 Paris Island Gateway. If you're listening in another part of the country, you can live stream the service. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for the live stream connection. God bless you as you walk with our Savior.